Let's pray together. Father, as always, we want to stop and acknowledge our helplessness. God, we are human, and therefore we need help. But God, at the same time, we thank you that not only did you know that, but you provided the help. First, in the person of Jesus coming and taking on our sin and raising again and beating our greatest enemy, which is death. But now through the person of the Holy Spirit, because of that, that Jesus purchased can bring us help. And so we ask you now for your Holy Spirit to fill us, to empower us, to see and to know the truth of these words. And God, I pray they'd be an encouragement to us, that you would bring about what these words say we can have. And God, as always, I ask that you help me to communicate it in a way that first and foremost honors and glorifies you, and then two, helps us. And so God, we thank you for this opportunity and for the privilege and honor it is to not only gather together as the church in multiple locations, but God, to hear your word. And God, I pray that now you would not only fill us with your spirit, but through the power of the spirit, you would take this word and plant it in our hearts and that it would grow this fruit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you got a Bible, we're gonna be in John chapter 14. We're actually closing out John chapter 14. And as you're turning there, just to kind of recap quickly for you, if you weren't here, last week is um, we've been talking about the role of the Holy Spirit. And I've had more conversations this last week about Hamburger Helper than I have in probably the last two decades. Um, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, you can go back and watch the message. If we were a really, really creative church, we'd be uh, serving Hamburger Helper today uh, at, as our welcome area. So we'd be like, welcome to our church. And they'd be like, why do you have beef stroganoff? This is weird. Um, but we talked about last week in the message how the Holy Spirit is our human helper and how the, the role of the Holy Spirit is there to help us. And I was relating that to the concept of hamburger helper. And not that the hamburger needed help, but in the early 70s, there was a beef shortage. And so therefore, they created this product called hamburger helper, and it was wildly successful. But what's amazing is not only have I had conversations about Hamburger Helper, some of them have been good. Some of them, people are like, oh, I love Hamburger Helpers. Other people were like, I hate Hamburger Helper because that's all we used to ever eat. And I was tra uh, traumatized by it as a child. I can't believe you brought that up again. Uh, or, or even the, also the spiritual applications that people have made about Hamburger Helper. One of our groups uh, was telling, the leader of one of our groups was telling me that in their group, they discussed it, how you bring these two parts of Hamburger Helper together, like the, the hamburger, then all this stuff in the box. And then you can't separate it out after that. It's like us and the Holy Spirit. I'm like, oh, that's good. That's a great application. I didn't think about that. Uh, so it goes on and on and on. It's the illustration that, that lives on forever. And so I hope you have prayed differently this week. You have thought differently about the role of the Holy Spirit and how he is here to help you. And then this week, what I want to do, because this is what Jesus is going to do as we wrap up chapter 14, is hopefully give us more help not only in the role of the Holy Spirit, by, but by the words of Jesus. Because I think these words of Jesus 
not only, I mean, they're timely in every generation. They're, they're timely all the time, but particularly just in our life in the last few years, because there's been so much chaos, I think this word from Jesus today is particularly timely. And that's what's amazing about Jesus. If you want to be timeless, you have to be eternal. And so since his word is eternal, it's always timely in every time, in every age. And so God just knows how to do that. And I think this word is timely for that reason. So let's go John chapter 14, and I'm going to start in verse 27, and we'll chat about that, and then we'll work our way to the end of the chapter. Jesus says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Now you can see why I think that's a timely verse. There's been a lot of troubling things in our world over the last several years. And if there's one thing that probably people of all generations, all religions, all backgrounds would say they want is peace. You know, I don't know if you've ever watched award shows or pageants. It's like, what do you want? Yeah, I want world peace. Well, who doesn't, right? Only crazy people and psychos and some evil dictators don't. But the average normal person would be like, yes, I want peace on earth, goodwill towards men, right? And what's really crazy here, or not crazy, but cool in a good way, is Jesus gives commands at the end of the verse, and we've talked about this before, the, the phrases, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid, are commands. And those two words, troubled and afraid, troubled means to be stirred up. The, the word that we would use today in our common vernacular is anxious. So Jesus is saying, let your hearts not be anxious or have anxiety, be filled with anxiety. And so that's what that word means. And then the word afraid isn't just a feeling in the sense of like, you know, like, Troubledness is a feeling, but the word afraid means you lack courage to do something, and so it leads to inaction. And so what Jesus is getting about here is like, I don't want your heart to be so anxious that you quit moving forward. You get like paralyzed. And I don't know if you've ever struggled or wrestled with anxiety, but that is one of the fallouts, if you will, from having an anxious heart is you just feel paralyzed. You don't know what to do because you can't control this emotion that's going on in you. I, I used to think in my younger years when I was newer to faith that, you know, that's just something I could pray away or that was just something that, you know, that, that somebody that wasn't strong enough couldn't handle until in my own life, I experienced seasons where my heart starts racing and, and I can't control it because I've been kind of living my life at this limit. And, and now my body has jumped over my tolerance level and I can't just bring it back down. And when you have those feelings, right? You can't just talk. Don't you wish you could just talk to your heart and be like, quit being anxious. And your heart would be like, okay, I'll stop that. Don't you wish you could do that? And, and, and so you read this and you're like, well, then why would Jesus give us the commandment if we can't do it? But I told you before, Jesus gave you all kinds of, in fact, all the commands you can't do. So it's built into the system that he's going to command you something that you can't do. And this is when you're like, well, this is a great sermon. But, right? God helps us do what we can't do. 
And so what I wanna point out to you is, yes, Jesus commands us to not be troubled and to not be paralyzed where we can't move forward, but he said something before that. He said something before that. And the something that he said before that is what enables us to do what we can't do by direct effort. And that's what grace is. I love Dallas Willard's definition of that. If you don't know who he is, a great Christian theologian, philosopher, he's since gone to be with the Lord. He taught at USC uh, in Southern California for a long, long time. Very widely respected scholar, but one of the greatest theologians of his time. He, helps me, he helped me understand grace is the ability to do something that we can't do by direct effort. So grace empowers me to do something that I couldn't have done by myself. And so grace that empowers me to do something, the grace that empowers me to not let my heart be troubled and not be afraid is the peace of Jesus. And Jesus says, my peace I leave to you, my peace I, or peace I leave to you, my peace uh, peace I leave you. I should just read it instead of trying to quote it, all right? <laughs> peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. There we go. See, I can't do it. So when he's talking about this, he's saying, I'm, I'm gonna give you something. I'm gonna give you something. And this peace I'm gonna give you is gonna enable you to do what you can't do, which is let your heart not be troubled, which those are commands, like I said. And so let's talk about this word here, peace. This New Testament word here for peace builds upon the Old Testament Hebrew word for peace that's normally translated as peace, which if you've ever been around church, you may have heard before. I've talked about it. Pastor Davis talked about it a lot. Is the Hebrew word shalom. And so this word is, is really kind of borrowing meaning because remember, Jesus is Hebrew. Jesus is Jewish. And so when he's talking about peace, you have to understand how he would use the word based upon his cultural context. And so this Hebrew word shalom for peace is not in the way that we think of peace normally, because the way we normally think of peace is peace is the absence of something. So I'll get peace when there's an absence of conflict and chaos. So we talk about nations being at peace because they are not at war. So we tend to think of peace as like, okay, something is not present. Conflict is not present. Chaos is not present. We're at peace, right? Those of you that have multiple children or are married, you understand this. In your home, when there's the presence of chaos or conflict, there's not peace, right? And so what we think about is, well, I just need to remove the chaos. I need to remove the conflict, which is not wrong to deal with conflict or, or deal with it appropriately in order to try to do away with the chaos. But this is why we can't just run straight to conflict for conflict's sake. Because sometimes adding more conflict to a conflicting situation makes it more chaotic. And this is when people are like, well, I just run to chaos. That's just who I am. Well, who you are might be wrong. Because just bringing more chaos to the situation through conflict isn't necessarily going to bring about peace. But see, the biblical Hebrew definition of the word peace, shalom, is not about the absence of something. It's about the presence of something. 
And better yet, it's about the presence of someone. See, the Hebrew word for peace, shalom, if we were to try to put meaning to it or, or give a definition to it, it would be something like this. Completeness or wholeness in every area of your life. Wholeness and you're whole. You're complete. You're not lacking anything. And so you are emotionally whole. You are spiritually whole. And so peace is not something that it's like, oh, just get rid of this thing and then we'll have peace. Peace, biblically speaking, is no, you gotta add in something or better yet, you gotta add in someone or you'll never get wholeness. You'll never get satisfaction, completeness, fullness in every area of your life. What's also really interesting, Pastor David was reminding me of this this week because as most of you know, he is ethnically Jewish. And so we talked a lot about this and, and really helped me understand even in my own following of Jesus. But the word shalom also means the authority to break chaos. The authority to break chaos. So watch this. If your life is chaotic, you need someone to show up who has the authority to break that chaos. And what Jesus is saying is that someone is him. He has the authority to show up and break the chaos and bring completeness and bring wholeness. But then Jesus clarifies it or quantifies it. He says, but I don't give it the way the world gives it. So we're talking about authority. We tend to equate authority with power. Whoever has the most power or the biggest muscles or the most advanced weaponry, whoever has power has authority. And I'm not saying they're not connected, but what I am saying is Jesus says, my peace doesn't come that way. I don't give it the way the world gives it. Because see, the world tries to bring about peace through the sword. The world tries to bring about peace through the sword. What's really interesting to me, and hang with me, I wanna give you a little bit of a history lesson here. What's really interesting to me is the timing in which Jesus says this in human history. I don't know how much you know about our calendars and how we divide our calendars, but you know, we divide, we are in 2022 AD which does not stand for after death. It's Latin for anno domini. It means the year of our Lord. And the reason why it's divided is because we divided history by the birth of Christ. So you have BC, which stands for before Christ. You have AD, which is year of the Lord, because when he was born, it was the year of the Lord. So to us, it's like, 2022 years since he was born to the Lord, it's a year. It's his year. And what that means is it's his rule and reign. Now, in our university systems, we no longer use those phrases to divide human history. If you've taken any type of education or higher education, we now say BCE, which is before common era, E-R-A, and now CE, which is the common era. 
So we took out Christ and how we divided it. Shocker. We still divide it, but just quit telling you why we divide it. Just the before the common era or the common era. What was the delineation between the before common era, common era? We don't know. We just divide it. It's Christ, okay? It was his birth. Now, there's some debate, just debate the way calendars work on the years. Some people think it's off a year or two. But let's just say, for argument's sake, this is now 33 AD when Jesus is saying this. Because we know Jesus lived 33 years. So this is about 33 AD. Well, there was something that was brought about in 27 BC, and you know, those count down. Now we're counting up. So 27 BC till 33 AD, that's 60 years if you add those together. So we are now 60 years into something in human history that is really kind of unparalleled in a lot of ways. It's what we now look back and call the Pax Romana. Now, if you don't know what that is, that is Latin for Roman peace. Now you see why I'm talking to you about this. This is in the height of Roman peace. Roman peace. Now, we don't look back at this time in human history and call it Roman peace because it was so peaceful. People weren't like, man, the Romans, they're just so peaceful. They just come in and they're nice to us and they serve. No, if you know anything about it, they were brutal. They were, I mean, military, they were amazing. And I'm not making that as a moral statement. I'm just saying you can't deny their prowess, their, their sheer power that they had. I mean, they conquered the known world at the time. And the reason why this was unique in human history is before this point in time, we had never had one nation that was so powerful that controlled all of them and brought about such stability where all these other nations weren't fighting each other. And the reason is, is because Rome beat them all up and they're all like, we can't fight that Goliath. So therefore we're at peace. There wasn't conflict, even though there was a lot of conflicts. And this is why the Jewish people wouldn't say, oh yeah, it was so peaceful. The Romans were so peaceful. No, the Romans were brutal. In fact, when we get a chance to go to Israel again, one of the craziest parts of the trip is when we go up to this place called Masada, which was the last uh, fortress for Israel when Rome was taking over, just like Jesus prophesied that they would in 70 AD. The Jewish people, the king, went to this fortress of Masada. It was way up on the top of the hill. And, and they stayed there for quite a long time until the Romans basically smoked them out and then built a bridge up into the top over this huge valley and slaughtered them. So the Romans weren't peaceful in that sense. They were brutal, but they brought about a lack of conflict between others. And here's what Jesus is saying. The peace I give to you is not brought about by human power. It's not a brought about by the sword. This is why Jesus told Peter when Peter pulled out the sword to protect him. Peter is chastised by Jesus. And now we paraphrase it. You live by the sword, you die by the sword. So Jesus said, I don't give it the way the world gives it. See, the world gives it through a knife at your neck, through the sword. But Jesus was gonna give it through suffering, 
through suffering. And this is what people to this day, particularly those of Jewish descent, say why Jesus is not the Messiah, because they think he failed. He didn't bring about political peace. And isn't it interesting, every four years, we vote in this country for a new person that promises to bring us in political peace. And what I always try to say is, every, year, every four years, you can vote for a president, but please don't think you're voting for a Messiah. Because it'll never come about that way, ever. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying, and I'm saying that nations shouldn't have military might and shouldn't protect their borders and boundaries. They should. It's crazy for a nation not to, because then you won't be a nation anymore. So it is totally okay, even biblically speaking, that our country has arguably the greatest military on the planet, and, and that military can be a force for good on the planet. And it is okay for Christians to serve in the military. I'm not a Christian pacifist where I think we can't. And so I want you to hear me say that it is totally okay for a nation to have boundaries and borders and protect themselves. But the Christian understands something, that there are limits to earthly kingdom powers to bring about peace. If anything, they're holding it back from going more crazy, but they can't, for, they can't move forward the advance of peace. Have you ever wondered why it's so hard for us to take our system, our democracy, our peace to other countries? Because there's a power, there's a battle that's going on. And as Christians, what we need to understand, I think what Jesus is saying is my peace doesn't come about through human strength. It comes about through human weakness. And so here's the ultimate principle for us as individuals. Nations are different. You and I will never bring about peace in our own lives through sheer willpower, through strength. Because remember, it's not about the absence of something, it's about the presence of something, therefore about the presence of someone, and that someone ain't you. Have you ever tried to go after peace? peace? It's like trying to go after patience. You're like, I'm gonna be patient. Has that ever worked out? No, you'll never bring about peace, you'll never bring about patience, why? Because human nature is... No, I get that by power, but Jesus says, I have a different nature. I have a godly nature, a metaphysical nature, and it's not about by power. It's brought about by weakness, not the sword, but by suffering. See, Jesus wasn't going to take a knife to the Roman emperor's throat. He was going to take a knife to his own. Jesus wasn't going to rise up and, and militarily conquer people. He was going to lay down and let them conquer him. And the reason why we wrestle with peace, peace so much is because we try to get it through the world's way. But we are of another kingdom. He goes on, look at this, verse 28. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. 
And now that I have told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. See, this is amazing to me. What he's about to do, they can't wrap their minds around. And again, a lot of people today still can't. He's about to go die. He's about to lay down his life. And he wants them to know that when it happens, that it didn't happen because he was too weak and powerless to stop it. It happened because he was obeying a command. He was obeying an order given to him by his father so that when it happened, they would know that he chose to do this. And then that would create belief. Here's what's so amazing to me about Jesus. In the midst of the most chaotic time in his life, he still has the wherewithal, the sovereignty to help them in their weakness. Jesus is literally hours away from sweating drops of blood. And yet, he's tender enough to tell these struggling disciples what's going to happen so that when it happens, they may believe. See, Jesus was calm in the midst of the most cosmic chaos that was ever going to happen. This is why when another time when they were on the Sea of Galilee and there's a storm that rises up and Jesus is sleeping in the bottom of the boat and they're freaking out. How can you sleep in a storm? Well, you can sleep in a storm when you know the waves obey you. Jesus could walk into this cosmic chaos knowing that he was in charge of it all, even though they didn't understand it. Look at what he says next. This is the most amazing part. You think I've gotten excited yet? Just wait, baby. Verse 30 and 31. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. See, he's saying, listen, this is about to happen, and I want you to know, I'm telling you now that it's about to happen so that when it happens, you'll be like, oh, he told us this, and you'll believe. But then he tells them what's about to happen. The ruler of this world is coming, but he has no claim on me. Now, let's break this down. The word there for ruler, in the Greek, I've got it here on the screen, it's quite a bit shorter than the word I gave you last week. But here's the word. It's archon. Or in Hebrew, it'd be achon. It's real guttural, right? Just be careful who you're around. You might spit on them if you try to say it in Hebrew. But it means ruler, leader. Now look at this definition. One who most fully embodies or fully embodying the qualities of the kind. What that means is this. Someone is a leader, not by their title. Oh, they may have the title. But what makes them a leader is not their title, but their qualities. And this word archon, interestingly enough, and I never realized this before studying this, we use this word all the time in English. We don't have the full word archon, but A-R-C-H. We use it with words like this, arch enemy. Same word. An arch enemy is the chief enemy. Your chief rival. College football starting, you have an arch enemy, right? You have a chief one. 
the one who embodies the qualities of the team that you hate the most. You get get what I'm saying here? Think about it. Even in church world, we use the word, in Catholic circles particularly, archbishop. Because in Catholic world, watch this, hierarchy, hierarchy, it means the levels of authority. So you have priests over a local uh, church, then you have a bishop who's over multiple ones, and then you have an archbishop who is over the bishops, over the priests. You see, that's the hierarchy. So you got arch nemesis, you got hierarchy. Here's another one, monarchy. Same word. A monarchy is one, mono is one, archy is ruler. One ruler, one chief person. Another one, the opposite of that is anarchy. Anarchy means no ruler, because anytime you put the A before a word, it means the opposite. So you go where, you understand where I'm going with this word? It means ruler, chief. But the concept of a leader, by definition, should be someone who embodies the character qualities the most. So let me just talk about in our local context. We have team members, we have staff members, we have uh, pastors, and then my title is lead pastor. We don't have senior pastor here because I say all the time, Jesus is the senior pastor. So I don't take that title. This isn't my church, you're not my people. But as lead pastor, it's my job to embody the qualities of a godly leader more than anybody else. Why? Because you might follow somebody who has a title for a little while, but you won't follow them for a long while if they don't have the qualities. So by definition, watch this, by definition, leadership is a moral endeavor. I am called by God to be the leader of morality. I'm called to embody the qualities more than anyone else on our staff, which is why I don't ever ask our staff to do something that I'm not willing to do. I never ask you to do something that I'm not willing to do. Because by definition, leadership is this. Watch this. I am living out what I'm trying to lead you to do. You with me? So here Jesus calls the devil the archon. Here's what that means. The devil is the chief evil one. He is the one who embodies the opposite of holiness more than anyone else. See, on one side, you got God, who the Bible describes as holy, 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 because in Hebrew, you didn't have adjectives. You just repeated it. So you wouldn't say something is very good. You would say it's good, good. And if it was perfect, it was good, good, good. So God is perfect. He's holy, holy, holy. He's not very holy. He's not really holy. He's Perfectly holy, 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 holy. So you got the devil on the other end who's evil, evil, evil. And this is what the book of Revelation, by the way, is trying to describe him as when it uses the numbers 666. Everybody always looks for the numbers 666. It's not so much the numbers, it's the meaning behind it because seven is the number of perfection. So six is the number of imperfection. So the devil's not just six. He's not just 66. He's 666. He's completely evil. He's the archon of evil. But watch this. 
But Jesus says, even though he's the archon, he's the ruler of this world, he ain't got no claim on me. Now, in Greek, what's interesting, there's no word there for claim, like literally the word claim. Sometimes we try to put definition. Literally, it reads in the Greek, he ain't got nothing on me. Now, I don't know how street you are, but Jesus is an OG, baby. Now, if you don't even know what I mean by that, I ain't got time to educate you, all right? But here's what Jesus just, this is why I like Jesus. Jesus just said, the archon of this world's coming, but he ain't got nothing on me. It's a colloquial phrase that we use, which means he ain't got nothing for me. He's got no advantage over me. It's the idea, think about it this way. This is why I mean street. It's the idea, this is how gangs work, right? Gangs have a block or, or a couple blocks. And so you got one dude who's the baddest dude on the block. And we all look at that and think, why do the younger boys go into that gang? You think they have a choice? Because the baddest dude on that block made them go. That's why. Because the baddest dude on that block said, if you don't come, I'll kill you and your whole family. So they get into evil because someone more evil and more powerful than them forced them into it. So think about it like this. Here's Jesus walking in to a rival gang's territory called planet Earth. He doesn't have one block, he's got all the blocks. He don't have one kingdom, he's got all the kingdoms. He don't have one ruler, he's got all the rulers. Every ruler of every nation state, listen to me, and I'm not trying to be political or weird, but if they do not submit to Jesus, then they are under the authority of the devil. There's only two sides. And the devil parades around like the angel of light that he used to be. But Jesus shows up in that rival's neighborhood He's like, he's coming, but he ain't got nothing on me. I'm a bigger mamma jamma than him. I have power that he don't have. This is when I wish sometimes Jesus was to go full street and be like, I made the fool. I created him. And you're going to come at me. This is like an NFL player going up against a Pee Wee football league. Sorry, I got... Meat on the mind last week and football on the mind this week. <laughs> Jesus is saying, he ain't got nothing for me. No advantage over me. No power over me. So watch this. When I give myself over to him to kill me, you need to know he didn't do it because he was more powerful. He did it because I let him do it because I'm more powerful. And why did I let him do it? Church, here's the best part because he does have something on you. He does have a claim on you. He does have power over you. He does have authority over you. Go to Ephesians chapter two if you want to quickly. Let me show you another verse in the Bible where this exact same Greek word archon is used to explain what I'm meaning. Ephesians two, one through seven. Here's what Paul said. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. Listen, following the prince 
That word there is the same word. So we could translate ruler. Following the archon of this world. Following the archon of the power of the air. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Look at verse three. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. As I was studying this message this week, and I I try to be honest with you, even emotionally, as I wrestle through these truths, but when I was studying this message this week on Thursday, I bust out crying. And here's why. Because as I read that, this overwhelming emotion hit me. The devil is more powerful than me. He does have a claim on me. Because see, this power is not just the power to punish, but it's also the power to accuse. See, the Bible calls the devil the accuser the accuser of the brethren, all he does all day and night is complain to God about how sinful we are. And here's the problem. Even though he's a liar, everything that he says about me is true. And I was so overwhelmed with the motion and I just started saying it out loud. He does have a claim on me. He does have power over me. Everything that he says about me is true because I am sinful. I do sin. Every accusation he makes, he doesn't have to make one up about me because they're all true. And and I had a meeting just a few minutes after that. And when this staff member came into my office, I said, I'm sorry, you have to forgive me. I was just crying. And she's like, oh, is everything okay? I'm like, oh no, these are great tears. Because let me read you verse four. Aren't you glad the Bible didn't stop at verse three? Here's verse four. The best two words in the Bible. I've said it before. Verse four. But God, but God. See, without God, I would have been left on the street corner powerless to an archon that was mightier than me. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, verse six and seven. Watch this. And, and, gosh, I love conjunctions. First, but, now, and. Come on, God, are you serious? I get a but and an and. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards in Christ Jesus. You know when the coming ages are? Now. See, now when the devil walks over to my block and says, follow me, sin with me, All I have to say is like what Jude 1.9 says, the Lord rebuke you. See, the Bible says even Michael, watch this, the archangel, don't fight the devil. He doesn't fight him, but he says the Lord rebuke you. See, now when the devil accuses me, all I have to say, all we have to say is 
God made me alive. And now I sit at the right hand of the Father. And my dad can beat up your dad. My father can beat you up and he did beat you up and he took the fangs out of your mouth so you can accuse me all day long but now because of Jesus you have to take a back seat because he took your greatest blow and he won. Come on. What does that do for your anxiety? What does that do for your fear? See, my worst day now with Christ is still eternally better than my best day before Christ. Because you want to know why? Watch this. I just, I just got this. Because Jesus divided the history of my life. See, I have a time in my life where it was before Christ. Come on now. Now, because not only Christ was born, but he made me alive. I was reborn. I have an AD now. I have a year of the Lord. And if I could say one thing to you, church, it would be this. I know the devil's got something on you, but the beauty of the gospel is he ain't got nothing on Jesus. And Jesus took his nothing and he gave it to you. And he took your something and he nailed it to the cross so that now if you're in Christ, the devil ain't got nothing on you either. Let's pray. Father, thank you. There is no message like the gospel. There is no person like Jesus who came and defeated the one we were powerless against. The devil had no claim on him. But yet he died as though he did because he loved us. And God, I pray right now for anybody listening or watching this who was being whipped by the power of the accusations of the evil one. That right now by the power of the Holy Spirit and the power with which Jesus came out of the grave, would break into their neighborhood, would break into their heart and say, no more. All those accusations, I'm taking them. And God, I pray that you would save somebody right now from the grip of the power of sin and death. No one looking around or talking here as we close. If there's never become a point in time in your life where you can say you have a BC and now a time after, 
then by grace, you can be saved. The Holy Spirit is opening up your eyes to see the truth about who you are and who Jesus is. Then all you have to do today is admit your weakness and the power of the Lord will come in and save you and banish you from the rule and reign of the devil forever and welcome you into the kingdom of God where you will be seated at his right hand as his child. So if that's you, you can pray with me. You don't have to do it out loud. Just introducing you to my father. You can say this, say, Father, I admit that I am weak and powerless and that sin has defeated me and I've been living to my flesh under the authority of the evil one. But now I see that Jesus took that on the cross. So I ask you to save me, forgive my sins in Christ. I submit my life now to you, God, who love me. No one looking around or talking here as we close, if you just prayed that with me, we wanna know that. So would you just simply lift up your hand Again, don't be ashamed. This is the greatest day of your life. Praise God. You just got set free. As Galatians 5.1 says, it was for freedom that he set you free. You now no longer have to live under the power and oppressing reign of the ruler of this world. And those of us who are in Christ, this is a great reminder that yes, we still sin. Yes, the devil is still here. And one day Jesus will return and do away with him forever. But if we walk by the spirit, again, if we admit we're powerless, we admit we're weak, we ask for help, then we will not gratify the desires of the flesh because we do have a power available to us through the person of the Holy Spirit that defeats any power that the devil could throw at you. And yes, we understand that anxiety is a real problem. I'm not just saying if you pray harder, it'll go away. But what I'm saying is when anxiety grips you, remind yourself of the one who's holding you. And that peace that he has, as Paul says, will surpass all understanding because you have the presence of your God and you do not have to give in. So yes, it's a fight, but we fight now from a place of victory because of Jesus. Father, I pray that you would apply this to our hearts. What a truth, what a God. We thank you for Jesus, our archon, our ruler, who came from another world, died and rose again. And we look forward to one day ruling and reigning with you in the new kingdom, in the new heaven, in the new earth. Until then, help us. In Jesus' name.
Amen.